It's time for a bedtime story. Today's bedtime story is The Rich Man's Journey by Alison Pitt. A tale of adventure and friendship, terrifying creatures, a brave goose and strange goings-on. We follow Edward from his lonely tall tower over land, sea and sky in his amazing flying boat to faraway places. From riches to rags, will he find friends and happiness? Hello, I'm Alison Pitt and I'm going to read you my story, The Rich Man's Journey. Edward Theodore Marmaduke de Cassegrain was a very rich man with a very long name. He lived high up on a hill in a tall, posh house, protected by a massive wall that enclosed the house like a cold, stony hug. Far below in the valley was a happy town, but Edward never went there. In fact, he never went anywhere. He stayed in his quiet house, all alone, day after day after day. There was plenty to do in his big house, though. There was a huge wall-sized TVs in every room, even the bathroom. The latest music at the touch of a button. The most amazing gadgets and games of every kind. A robot or a food box programme to make his favourite food, a music bot to decide what music he should listen to. In fact, the bots made his life so easy. There was one thing, though, that the bots could not help him with, his loneliness. He hadn't always been alone and he hadn't always had such a long name. He used to be called Eddie Big House before he was rich. When he was Eddie, he knew lots of people, had plenty of friends. He had a job inventing clever things like the food bot. In fact, he invented so many clever things that he started to get famous, and that's when it all went wrong. He started to get very rich from selling his ideas, and the richer he got, the meaner he became. He thought everyone should recognise how important he was, and he was sure that people would steal his ideas or his money. He began to shout and boss his family about, then his friends, and then, when there was no one left to boss about, he picked on the milkman then the postman, until they were all so fed up of being treated so rudely that they left him one by one. Now, alone and surrounded by walls and lifeless bots, he began to think, what is the use of having gadgets and games with no one to play with? Funny TV programmes weren't funny at all with no one else to laugh with. Tasty meals had lost their flavour. Dancing on his own felt weird, and he was bored of playing games against the computer, especially as the computer always won. How can someone be so lost in their own home, he thought. Edward stood at the window, looking down into the town. He heard a sound he hadn't heard for a while, the sound of children's voices caught in the wind, calling and laughing with their friends, and a distant growl of busy traffic from the streets. But inside the house, there was no noisy life. All that could be heard was the low hum of the fridge and little pings from various gadgets. His shoulders sank and a small tear ran down his face. Then a small white bird flew past the window, catching Edward's distant gaze. 
he looked up and watched as the bird twirled and danced in front of him like a singing snowflake. Then another bird joined him, then another and another, all twirling and whirling and singing their feathers off. Then with a final happy musical tweet, they flew off together. Edward watched them swooping and singing until they floated off into the blue horizon. He had an idea. He would go and find a different horizon for himself. He would be like the birds, always moving, dancing, singing. He would not stay any longer in the enormous, unfriendly house. He would go on adventure and perhaps, just perhaps, he would find people like him. This was so exciting. He hadn't planned or designed anything for a very long time. He went straight to his drawing desk and began planning his greatest invention to date, a sailing, driving, flying machine in the shape of a ship. It would have sails and funnels and paddles and wheels and clever wings that could be folded or unfolded. He would sail across seas, roll over lands and fly through skies, just like the beautiful birds. He wanted it to be a ship that would journey forever and ever. By the middle of March, the ship was almost ready. Edward had spent weeks and weeks drawing, measuring, sawing and hammering. And now he sat at the sewing machine making red and white sails. He had no idea where the sewing machine came from. Perhaps it had been his mother's. He felt sad at the thought of his mother. He shook himself. All that was about to change. He was going to be an adventurer. He was going to be kinder and wiser and braver. And Edward leapt to his feet. At last, the sails were ready. The sailing, driving, flying ship was ready. All that day and all that night, Edward dashed from room to room, gathering provisions for his adventure. He needed warm clothes for cold places and cool clothes for warm places. His pillow and duvet, a special wind-up torch, a toothbrush, he decided not to bother with a hairbrush, a very useful penknife, a few pots and pans, a mug and a bowl. He pondered for a minute and then put in another mug. You never knew, it might just come in handy one day. He filled boxes with tins of his favourite food, spaghetti hoops and tomato soup, bags of salt and vinegar crisps, lots of biscuits. He'd read somewhere you always have biscuits on ships, hot chocolate and cornflakes. By dawn, he was ready. All the provisions were stowed away in a tiny hidden cupboard in a tiny narrow kitchen. His toothbrush was in one of the mugs on a shelf and his sort of bathroom, a cupboard with a bucket in it. And his bunk was made with his teddy tucked in. There was just one thing left to do. Edward went to the bottom of the hill. In his hand was a letter addressed to the mayor of the town. Dear Mayor, please tell everyone I'm sorry. I've been mean and rude and unkind and I'm going away on an adventure and I will not be coming back. Please give my house to people who need it and my robots to people who want them and my possessions to people who like them. All my very best wishes, Edward Theodore Marmaduke de Cassegrand. He posted the letter. Then Edward climbed up the ship and with his hand resting lightly on the steering wheel, he released the handbrake and rolled slowly down the hill away from the town and his enormous empty house towards his new life. The sun was shining and Edward smiled. 
It seemed so strange to be free. At first, Edward wasn't sure which way to go. After months of drawing, measuring, sawing, hammering and sewing, here he was sailing past fields, villages, people shopping and at work. Pe children at school, in fact, ordinary everyday people doing ordinary everyday things. Hmm, he thought to himself. This was the part he hadn't considered. Which direction should he go in and where to? Then Edward remembered the dancing, whirling birds. They didn't hang around dithering and pondering. They took to the skies and went with the wind. That was it. He knew what to do. And with that thought, he pulled a long wooden lever. And the special wings of the sailing, driving, flying ship carefully and creakily unfolded themselves. Then, as he gathered speed, a gentle wind crept under the wings and slowly, slowly, the ship rose off the ground and into the sky. Edward laughed out loud. What a feeling it was to be flying. In fact, not flying, but sailing in the sky. He looked down and there beneath him were the ordinary folk doing their ordinary things, their mouths wide open in astonishment. And now he was so glad to be here and to be so free. Fancy wanting an ordinary life. On and on he flew, gliding over green hills dotted with tiny grazing animals, whooshing through deep valleys, floating over thick, dark forests. The tall trees so close, he was able to part the leaves and whisper secret words into a sleeping owl's ear. He gave a lift to a passing goose, exhausted by its long journey north. He peeped in through the window of a very high-up flat, startling an extremely large man who was eating egg and chips, so much that he poured the ketchup into his mug of tea by mistake. Once Edward stopped laughing, he realised he too was hungry. He went down into the little kitchen and made some spaghetti hoops on toast. He didn't bother with a plate and he spilt some on his shirt and he didn't care. This was great. His adventure had begun. He went back on deck and surveyed his new kingdom. Full of surprises and the unexpected and maybe hopefully friends. Far in the distance, he could see the glint of sun on water. Edward turned the wheel and steered towards it. As it grew nearer, he slowly pulled the wooden lever back up. The wings folded again inside the boat's body and the sailing, driving, flying ship gently drifted down and onto the sea with a quiet splash. How he loved the sea. The constant movement, the little slappy sounds of the waves against the side of the boat and the tippy-tappy sounds of the seagulls dancing on the decks. At first he felt a bit seasick and clung greenly to the railings. But after a few days, he got used to the always up and down feeling in his belly. Now, when the sun came up in the morning, Edward leapt out of his bed, banged his head on the ceiling. This was a mistake he made every day. And still in his spotty pyjamas, raced up the slightly wobbly stairs to the deck to say hello to the day. The goose, who was called Pearl, had stayed with him. They found they both enjoyed gazing over the sparkly green-blue water together. Edward with his mug of tea and Pearl with a chocolate biscuit, which she dunked into his tea when he wasn't looking. They didn't talk much, just smiled at each other. Pearl was Edward's first friend in a long time. 
Together they sailed on, sometimes passing bits of land or small islands. They didn't see many other boats, but when they did, Edward and Pearl would wave like mad, shouting, hello, hello, honk, honk, honk. And the people in the other boats did the same, but without the honk. Some of the land they passed was very strange. A dark, mysterious forest which at night glowed with the staring eyes of many secret creatures. Then a tiny wooded island with striped and spotted animals who grinned with sharp, mean teeth from behind the trees. They terrified Pearl so much she actually jumped up into Edward's arms, burying her beak in his pocket. Sometimes, for a change, they sailed onto the land to have a little look around. They were on an exploring mission one day when they came across a very high pointy mountain. They decided to go up. The air got colder and the roads got steeper and steeper. The boat groaned with the effort. And after a very long, long time, they reached the top to find them strangely surrounded by fluffy, soft pink and blue clouds. As they drew closer, they realised they were not clouds, but great fat birds with blue blinking eyes. They were very friendly and they greeted Edward and Pearl in a high, beautiful song that made Edward think of spring and hope and another time long ago. He felt happy and sad at the same time. The birds perched on the tall mast of the boat and settled on the decks, calling out to each other in their special magical song. Edward and Pearl quite liked the birds, but then they ate all the biscuits and left feathers in the bunks and laid eggs in silly, inconvenient places like the frying pan and Edward's slippers. Edward decided he had enough when he found a bird snuggled into her, his bunk, her pink fluffy head resting lightly on his pillow and snoring quite loudly. That was it. Pearl helped Edward gather up all the hidden eggs and place them gently into a basket with a blanket over them to keep them warm. Then he hung the basket on the branch of a small, sturdy tree. Finally, they shooed the naughty birds away. Edward quickly pressed the fast button with a whoosh and a flurry of cross feathers. They sped back down the mountain, away from the cloud, back to the gentle calm of their seagoing life. With the gentle slap, slap of the water against the boat, and the sun in the sky. In fact, it was such a lovely day that Edward thought he might hang some washing out. He'd just pinned the last sock on the line when, annoyingly, he felt rain on his face. But oddly, the sun was still shining. And now they're away from the bird's mountain, there was not a cloud in the sky. Edward was puzzled. He looked around him, then he looked straight up, they appeared to be sailing underneath a waterfall, coming from some high cliffs above them. But as he looked further, he could see a woman kneeling at the top of the cliffs. Her hands covered her face and she was weeping. And as she wept, her sadness was so huge that her tears had created a waterfall. Edward and Pearl stared in wonder at her. What could possibly have happened to make this poor lady so sad? Perhaps she was stuck at the top of the cliff. That was it. They had to rescue her. And without further ado, Edward pulled the lever and the boat's wings unfurled. And up they flew to the top of the cliff to save the lady. But when they stood beside her, rescue ship at the ready, she still wept. They were baffled. Edward reached out his hand and touched her shoulder and asked, What is wrong? And why are you so sad? And 
how can I help you? The woman, whose name was Marigold, looked up at Edward, saw his kind face and answered in a wail, I've lost my baby William. We came up here to have a picnic and to gaze at the sea. He was sitting in his big pram when a huge gust of wind picked him up and blew him right away. I could see my baby laughing as the pram danced on the wind like a leaf. And then it landed in the sea with a tiny splash and floated away. And now my baby William is lost in this vast ocean. And as more tears ran down her cheeks to join the rest of the waterfall, Pearl started to cry too in sympathy, for indeed it was a very sad story. Edward thought for a minute and then had a very good idea. Dry your eyes and hop aboard. We will fly over the sea this way and Pearl will fly over the sea that way and we will look and search and search and look until we have found your William. So all day they flew over the vast sea that seemed to go on and on and still no sign of William in his boat pram. Edward thought he might start to cry too. It was Pearl who found him, bobbing along on the waves in his pram, his little fat hands twinkling the water, teasing the confused fish. They hadn't seen a boat like this before. She was so excited to see him that she honked and honked and honked long after the flying boat came into sight. Edward and Marigold were so happy they forgot they'd only just met and hugged each other and danced on the decks and then climbed as high as they dared up to the mask until a baby and his strange boat came into sight. That night was the best Edward could remember. Baby William was safe and fast asleep. Edward, Pearl and Marigold celebrated with a feast of custard creams saved from the birds by Pearl, cleverly hiding them under her wings, and hot chocolate. They told jokes and laughed and sang all their favourite songs. The ship was warm and cosy and lit by some tiny fairy lights Marigold had found in the bottom of her handbag. Edward sat in his chair grinning. What a day. What a very good day. Days, weeks, months went by. The ship was now quite weather-beaten. The paint was peeling in places and the sails had been patched up with odd bits of material found in Marigold's bag. So now it looked like a granny's patchwork quilt. More people had joined the ship. A farmer, her husband and their children. And all their animals were spotted marooned on their farmhouse roof, surrounded by water which had poured down the hills one very rainy week and flooded all their farmland. Luckily, the horse and cow turned out to be excellent swimmers. The sheep was a bit scared, but the horse gave a lift on his back and the family had managed to get to the safety of the roof. However, after a week of being stuck there, they were all very happy and relieved to see Edward's ship. It's fair to say Edward, Marigold and William were a little bit excited at the thought of fresh eggs and milk. Pearl was looking forward to chatting to the chickens. Another new member of the crew was Orlando, a strange, greenish, timid little man who'd been spotted digging in the beautiful garden filled with trees full of apples and pears, plums and apricots. At his feet were the fattest, juiciest strawberries and the shiniest blackberries they'd ever seen and flowers, so many flowers everywhere. As they drew nearer to the garden, 
the strange little green man ran and hid in his blackberry bush, shaking with fear. In fact, shaking so much that the whole bush shook too, sending shiny blackberries flying out in all directions. Marigold felt sorry for the little man. She remembered how scared and alone she'd felt when a baby was lost. So slowly and carefully, she approached the quaking blackberry bush. Slowly and carefully, she crawled inside. Many, many hours later, just as night was on its way and others on the boat were starting to get worried, Marigold and the smiling little green man emerged from the garden, pulling a trailer full of seedlings and a small fruit trees in pots. Together they hauled their load onto the ship. This is Orlando, announced Marigold. He'll be coming with us on our journey. And so, without further explanation, he did. So it was quite a busy day that found itself sailing through the clear, busy water, blue waters of the Sabagossa Sea, famous for the blueness of the water and the rumours of strange happenings. Today, as the sun rose over the distant Pavlova mountain, the sea was as blue as can be and clear enough to count the fish. Edward was thinking that this might be a good day to do a few repairs. Marigold was teaching William how to walk. Pearl, Orlando and the farmers were in the ship's garden preparing for the next season's crops. In fact, it was just a normal day, which is why everyone was so surprised by what happened next. One minute, all you could hear was the tuneless whistling of the farmer as he sorted through the seedlings. The next, a deafening whoosh as the boat was picked up by the biggest wave in the world. There they were held, suspended high, so high up in the air for what seemed like hours, but it was in fact only a few minutes. They hardly dared move or breathe. The ocean was so far away. Edward crawled along the deck. He had just reached the fly lever when the waves started to bring them down. Slowly slowly, then faster and faster, meeting the crashing roar of the water as they went down, then oddly further down than the actual sea, in a sort of roaring white, blue, green whirlpool, spinning and spinning. Then it stopped, the noise stopped, the spinning stopped, the falling stopped. The boat just rocked gently from side to side, recovering from its ordeal. Slowly, everyone emerged from their clinging positions. They looked at each other. What was that? But more's the point, where were they? Because this definitely wasn't the same Zabagossa Sea. The sea was green and rough. The waves were spiky and jagged against the side of the boat. There was a shoreline nearby and they could just make out the rocky gray beach against the background of dark greeny black forest. As the boat grew nearer, they thought they could see shadowy shapes moving about the trees. That was enough. Everyone agreed to get away as fast as they could. But the crash sea landing had smashed a hole in the side of the ship and the fly leave had been snapped in two. Nobody was going anywhere until it could be mended. Mr Farmer looked through the telescope and pointed to a little cove away from the forest and its menacing shadowy shapes. They crept into the cove just as the sun went down and darkness took over. Not surprisingly, no one slept that well apart from the children and Pearl, who later denied she'd slept but could be heard making very convincing snoring noises. 
Apart from the shock of the mighty wave crash and the scary shapes in the forest, they were all convinced they could hear music. Beautiful music all night. And it seems to be coming from the other side of the island near the dark, grim forest. Somebody had to investigate. Nobody wanted to. In the end, it was Orlando. They all reckoned he was best at hiding, having spent so many years just doing that. So Orlando climbed up the rock cliffs. Wasn't too difficult, just a bit crumbly, and he was slightly worried about what he's going to see at the top. However, it was just a lot of grass and a few scruffy bushes and the music. Up here was even louder. He could almost feel and see it swirling around him. He ran from bush to bush, using them like in, as cover, like he's seen them doing in the films, until he reached the other side of the hill. Then lying flat on his front so he couldn't be seen from the beach, he peered over the edge. And there, far below him, was an extraordinary sight. Five musicians were standing by the water's edge, playing as if they were in a concert hall. Their clothes were now torn and scruffy, but Orlando could tell even from this distance they had once been very posh. One even wore a battered top hat. The music was happy, but played in an unhappy way, which made it even more strange. Then he saw them, the dark, shadowy shapes that he'd seen from the boat. There they were on the beach, lots of them, large, lumbering with huge, ugly heads, red, staring eyes fixed towards the sea. Then, as Orlando watched, horrified and amazed at the same time, the creatures lifted their hideous heads and opened their mouths hugely wide. From the sea, dancing in time to the music, leapt hundreds of fantastically coloured fish. They spun in the air, flying on each musical note, higher and lower and around and around. The air was full of colour and music and beauty. Then one by one, they dropped into the waiting jaws of the hideous beasts. Orlando could not wait to get back to the others in safety. He almost threw himself over the safe cliff and scrambled down, arriving at the bottom, red in the face and in a shower of stones and mud. When he told everyone what he'd seen, they were horrified in an interested sort of way. Edward, who'd clearly become Ed, the leader, captain of ship and crew, said that something had to be done. It seemed like another rescue was definitely in order. They took it in turns to watch over the goings on at the scary creature's beach. It soon became clear that the fish, which were the most beautiful and delicious in the world, really loved the music played by the captive beach orchestra. From miles around, the fish would follow the note and throw themselves out of the water in ecstasy. It just so happened that the creature's favourite food was the delicious dancing fish. The creatures were delighted when they realised the musicians who'd been washed up on the island after their ship sank many, many years ago had this amazing fish-luring power. They decided to keep them prisoners forever never allowing the music to stop. So day after day, the musicians played, never getting any older, never running out of music. A plan was hatched. 
All the children were sent to gather up piles and piles of the green gold seaweed that washed up on the shoreline every day. Then, with the knitting needles from the bottom of her bottomless bag, Marigold set to and knitted the seaweed into a huge basket of surprising strength. It took a day and a night, and while she was busy knitting, Ed and the crew checked the ship over and made plans, first repairing the hull made by the crashing waves. Everyone was giving a, given a job to do. Ed and Orlando and the farmers chopped and sawed and hammered. The children gathered pebbles from the beach and lined them around the decks. They would come in very handy later. Someone wrote a letter to the musicians telling them what the plan was. Bravely, Pearl delivered it. The creatures were so busy snapping and growling and even hissing at Pearl, they didn't see the letter floating down. Then they were ready. It had been decided they'd fly over the scary cliff at night, drop the giant seaweed basket down to the musicians who would climb in and be winched up by the attached seaweed rope. It was going to be hard work to pull it up, but Ed and the others had built a brilliant winding up machine with a handle. As it was going to be difficult to keep the ship steady, Pearl was to hover above the ship, holding it still with her own seaweed rope. Over the cliff they went, following the sound of the music. The creatures didn't see or hear them coming. So intent was their gaze on the sea. And the musician had been told to play extra loudly to cover up any flying ship noises. They reached the spot above the musicians and slowly let down the basket. It landed on the beach soundlessly. Then, still playing, the musicians climbed in one by one. As the last man got in, one of the creatures turned, eyes glowing monstrously in the darkness. It opened its mouth and roared. The other creatures turned as one and the air was filled with the most horrible and terrifying sounds. They started lumbering towards the basket, surprisingly fast considering their size and bulk. Orlando, Marigold and the farmers all frantically turned the winding handle. Ed and Pearl were using all their strength to steady the ship. The children hurled the pebbles down onto Creature's head. Just in time, the basket was pulled out of reach and danger. All that was left was a hat. It was ripped apart in rage, sharp teeth snapping and red eyes glowing with fury. A huge cheer went up as the musicians were pulled onto the decks. Everyone was laughing and crying and kissing and dancing and hugging. It was only when they heard a soft thud that they realised they'd forgotten about Pearl. And now there she was in a tangle of seaweed rope, not moving, worryingly still. Everyone was completely silent. Poor Pearl, she'd used all her strength, holding the ship steady so they could save musicians. She was only a little goose, and now she was dead. What a splendid goose she'd been. She'd found Marigold's baby William. She'd been their friend. She'd been Ed's first friend ever. No, it can't be, not Pearl. Ed held her in his arms her little grey head resting on his shoulder, and he wept. Through the silence and the tragic tears, a quiet little voice spoke. Maybe this will help. 
and there stood Queenie, the youngest of the farmer's children. She held out a mug. I've been growing these herbs and I've noticed that when I put them into water and drink it, it makes me strong. Ed took the cup and he put it to Pearl's half-open beak, drop by drop. Some of it dribbled out, wetting her long, soft neck, but most went in. It seemed as if the whole boat held their breath as he watched and waited. Ed felt the tiniest of movements, a small shudder and a minuscule little croak. Pearl opened her eyes. For the second time that night, the whole boat erupted into cheers and laughter of relief and joy. Pearl was alive. Ed hugged and hugged her, tears of happiness pouring down his face. He would have sat there forever just doing that, had it not been for Marigold, who pointed out that nobody's actually flying the ship. Pearl was tucked up cosily in her bed, with all the children lovingly stroking her wings, a happy little smile on her face. And Ed took to the helm once more. The ship flew on through the night, its sails breathing in and out in time to the sighing, snoring passengers. It had been a mad few days, frightening, terrifying, more terrifying, happy, sad and happy again. No wonder they were all so tired. Next morning, though, they were up with the seagulls, peering over the sides at the still strange green spiky sea. However, they, ahead, they could just make out calmer, bluer water. They headed towards it. The boat landed back on the water with a grateful splash. It was tired after its adventures, too. The sea here was indeed calm. In fact, very calm and still and not really blue at all, but a very beautiful, bright turquoise. Golden, glittery fish darted and danced just beneath the surface. And, and in the distance, they caught a glimpse of silver cascades as shiny dolphins leapt and twirled in and out of the water. The sky was a perfect blue, the sun a perfect warm yellow. The day was pretty much perfect. Then very suddenly, without any warning, the ship fell into a hole. This time was different. They fell so slowly, drifting down and down like a feather floating. In fact, they went so slowly that this time they could take in their surroundings. This falling down hole had things moving behind its watery wall. It was like watching a teleprogram about another world. Flying crocodiles, swimming elephants, mighty odd walking insects, huge monsters with terrifying faces roaring silently, showing their dagger teeth, and tiny transparent dragons flicked past with big scared darting eyes. The ship's crew held onto the railings and stared and stared, still managing to be surprised even after all their adventures. It was a very, very long, drifty time later that the boat stopped floating down and instead floated forward. So there they were, at the end of the journey, but at the beginning of another. The sea was below them, the sky was above them, and the strange happenings in the floating, falling tunnel were behind them. And nobody was really sure what on earth had happened. But for weeks after, they would find scales and feathers and other unidentifiable things in curious places. 
The adventure was surely over. Marigold had her baby William. The sad man Orlando wasn't sad anymore. The farmers had been rescued. The musicians were now free. Pearl was alive. And Ed? Well, Ed had the best thing of all. Friends. This was just the beginning. The rich man stood at the front of the ship. His feet were bare. His clothes were old and torn. His hair was a bird's nest. His pockets contained nothing more than a piece of string and half a suck sweet. He was the happiest man alive. So that was The Rich Man's Journey by Alison Pitt. So welcome, Alison. Hi, nice to see you all. Oh, that was such a great story. And what I loved about it was you weren't alone. You were joined by your guinea pig and your cat making sound effects in the background. I really was. My guinea pig, bizarrely, lives in my workroom. Um, and so she's sort of, normally she's really quiet. She doesn't even squeak. But today she decided to romp about her cage in she a very must, loud yeah. fashion. She must have been enjoying your story. She and was like, enjoying it. And sure. the funny thing is, it did sound like the waves in the sea at certain well, there points you go. in the story. Sound effects the cat, created as well. Yeah, and then the cat made an appearance as well. <laughs> she did, and she's, my cat is completely deaf, so her meow is particularly loud. And she's very old as well, so she oh, likes to come down her. for a little snack. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So she was on the boat with Ed as well, wasn't she? she yeah, yeah, she was. Appearance. It was, yeah. Oh, well, congratulations on the book, Alison. It's absolutely br brilliant. But you're not, you're actually an artist um, and, of course, did the illustrations yourself to the book. But what made you think, I'm going to write a book now, it's time to write? Well, actually, I don't think I ever thought it was time to write. Um, I have I'm more of a storyteller, so I, yeah. I have loads of stories in my head all the time. And they can be triggered by the most ludicrous things. I don't know. Seeing a postman walk past the thing, I can think, oh, there's a story in that. Uh, <laughs> my cats, uh, you know, they generally sort of inspire me as well. Um, but I think for the for this particular story, I I remember the I think I wrote the last bit first. So oh, okay. Um, and it was I just like the idea of that utter freedom of sort of like thinking actually it's not going well my life's not going well so change it yes. and go all the way around wherever you want to go you have complete freedom so I think that's what it was you know and the pictures come along at the same time so they're they're not sort of like one then the other they're both sort of like created at the same time so I, I read I read that you um, cycled everywhere with your art with your kind of materials in the back doing various art workshops and things is there a connection? Did that inspire you to maybe write about the boat that's this freedom kind of thing, a bit like it is cycling, if that kind of makes sense? No, it really does make sense. Uh, yeah, because I, I have I don't just have a bike. I have a little trailer. And so I, I have my trailers packed with all my stuff. And there's many a time you sort of cycle past and there's a big traffic jams and Chester at the moment's got a one way system. So yeah, there's big traffic jams all the time. Yeah, and I just sail past. I, I, Cause you do feel like you're sailing when you're on a bike. Yeah, you do. Especially when you've got it's a trailer. Wonderful. Yeah. So it is, I think that's it. Yeah. Although I don't like flying, so I'm not sure where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> so is this your first book? This is not my first book. This is my first book that I've, um, got published. Oh, okay, so um, what other I've, works have you got in the background going on? Well, I've got 
I've got absolutely loads and they're all sort of picture books and I tend to sort of I mean I've made them for friends over the years um but this is my first long book the others yeah. are all um and lots of lots of journeys involved in, yeah. in all of them in fact there's a journey in just about all um so but I've got two on the go at the moment you might notice in my book there's a lot of quite a lot of reference to music yes um and stuff like that so and it's sort of like music being quite tangible you know you can actually almost touch it and see it so some of my my other books are going to be involved with doing that you know sort of music in so it'll be it'll be another um sort of probably 18 years before I get around to getting it out there <laughs> well I'm totally with you on that when I get where you're coming from from there yeah. with my experience of writing so what's your what was your experience with publishing have you self-published this book or have you got a publishing deal so kind of down the traditional publishing route as such I've got a traditional publish uh, publisher um which is very lucky I I've got a feeling I mean it's there, there quite a, are quite a lot of artists and writers sort of combined, but it's it's not as usual to have you know the two, the person who does the writing and the drawing. And the so illustrations, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's sort of I think that's probably what they thought. Oh, right, there you go. And um, so it's a small publisher called Pegasus Publishers, um, and it's it's been it was it's very exciting. It's really exciting and a real honour to be published. It's great. Um, it's not as plain sailing as I thought it was going to be. I don't know what no. I thought. I don't know. You sort of imagine it's going to be a sort of some sort of glittering occasion where you, where you're sort of like book signing and sort of you know J.K. Rowling sort of type yeah, thing. Yeah. But in fact, I I was published um, in lockdown last year. Um, it was actually in July, so you know obviously we were out of lockdown for a little bit, but um, people people don't buy picture books in the summer. You know, I was really hoping in my head, I hoped it was going to be Christmas time. People would be queuing up, queuing up at Waterstones. But no, <laughs> no, it is a different world now, isn't it? I think there's so many authors out there, great yeah. authors. And it's all down to that letter. If you get that letter right, if, if all the gods and the winds are all in the right direction, that everything's got to fit into place and your book's got to land on that desk. Yeah. Think, yes, that, that fits everything. That ticks all the boxes. That's perfect. Because um, it can be soul destroying for authors who do get uh, no, thank you, not for us. But then another publisher might say, "Yeah, that's for us." You never know what they're looking for, do you? Really? I think you've got to be really true to yourself, and if yeah. you believe in it, if you believe in what you're what you're doing, and if you believe in your story, um, and you believe in your your what you've created and the message you're saying, I think that um, actually that's enough. You yeah, know, and yeah. because. If, if I listen to every single um, bit of advice I got, I mean, you have to send it out to friends and family and whatever, and people come back and everybody's experience is completely different. Um, and if you if you listen to every single little bit of sort of like crit, I mean, that's, you know, it's helpful to have criticisms and ad advice and suggestions, but yeah. then you, you, you could change it. So it was never yours. So exactly, I think, yeah. and that was the advantage of it taking me taking so long over, reading it I, I'd come back and um it might be five years later and I'd look and go I still believe in what I'm doing which yeah, is really that's brilliant exactly yeah. that's what you that's what you want to hear isn't yeah it? oh so it's been so lovely talking to you today and listening to the rich man's journey so for our listeners Alison if they need to get in contact with you have any questions or want to purchase the book how can they get in touch with you um I'm I've got an email I've I'm on Facebook I'm a Facebook Alison Alison Pitt artist um, and email is Alison A Pitt 
at yahoo.co.uk. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Alison Pitt Artist. Yes, I am. You know, I tried to remember sure. all these various <laughs> social media things. But it's generally Alison Pitt Artist, um, and that's the best way to find me, track me down. Brilliant. Oh, wonderful. Well, again, it's been lovely talking to you, and I look forward to hearing more from Alison Pitt in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Bedtime Stories is sponsored by Team Author UK, independent publishers. If you have a fabulous story to tell, get in touch as Team Author UK excel at helping writers just like you. Visit their website at www.teamauthoruk.co.uk or on their social media platforms at Team Author UK.